Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are in Washington this week. Yes, the evergreen state. I did not know it was called that, but you know what? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. It does. It does. There's lots of evergreen trees there. When I drive down my house, the, uh, down the hill to my house, there's like several different like types of like trees that I see. And like at one spot, all you can see is evergreen trees. I'm like, I'm in Washington. And then I go down <laughs> a little more and there's like these other trees that remind me of the South. I'm like, I'm in the South. Like, you know, <laughs> it changes depending on how the road turns. You're just all over the place on that road. So I have some fun facts about the great state of Washington. Please do. Well, I mean, let's get the first one out of the way. It's the only state that's named after a president, a.k.a. George Washington. That's true. You're forgetting about President Utah, duh, but... President Utah, that guy. (laughs) (laughs) Olympia is Washington's capital, but Seattle's its most populous city. In fact, close to 60% of Washington residents live in the Seattle metro area, which is kind of crazy if you think about how large the state is. It's a big state, yeah. Washington is the biggest producers of apples, raspberries, and sweet cherries in America. I knew apples. I didn't know the rest of it. I knew cherries because I feel like I always see Washington cherries at the grocery store and they're always delicious. Well, I just always think of Miss Congeniality when uh, they're welcoming them onto the bus and... uh, Frank is like, Washington, nice apples. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Washington is also responsible for producing a majority of the U.S.'s hops and mint. Hops and mint. All right. So if you want some beer or a mint julep, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. It makes sense because there's like definitely some hops called the Cascade hops. And I'm like, I bet they're from the Cascade Mountains. Okay, here we go. Makes perfect sense. Uh, Washington State is 52% forest, hence the Evergreen State nickname. Again, that makes sense. Yeah. It's home to an incredibly diverse range of flora and fauna, including some of the oldest trees in the country. If you love old trees, you can visit the Grove of the Patriarchs Trail near Mount Rainier And you can see some of the oldest trees in the state. Several are over a thousand years old and have a circumference of more than 25 feet. Huh. You could live in that tree. You very well could. (laughs) Speaking of Mount Rainier, it's the highest mountain in the state of Washington. It's in the Cascade Range. It's also the most topographically prominent mountain in the contiguous United States. And... It's a volcano. What? Okay. I did not know that. I can often see Mount Rainier when I'm flying in and out of Seattle, and it's very picturesque. But apparently, it's a type of volcano called a stratovolcano, which means it's kind of been um, created over repeated kind of slow lava flows and out of multiple volcanoes. Uh, Mount Rainier's only erupted about 12 times in the last 2,600 years. At least that's what geologists can determine. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of crazy, right? Because you figure it's such a huge mountain. If it ever did go the way of Mount St. Helens, which is another mountain in the Cascade Range, it would be pretty devastating. But luckily, it's mostly smaller eruptions. The most recent one was in 1894. I was just about to ask if any of them have been in our lifetimes. And although we're now kind of old, we're not that old. (laughs) Not quite. Not quite that old. Close. 
<laughs> Spokane, Washington, is the smallest city to ever host a World's Fair. Huh, I didn't know that. Me either. It hosted the 1974 World's Fair, which marked the first time the World's Fair had an environmental theme, and it was attended by 5.6 million people, making it a successful World's Fair. Interesting, because Washington, I believe it was in Seattle, had the 1962 World's Fair, too. So That's right, and that's when the Space Needle was built. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of crazy uh, if you ever get to visit the Space Needle. It doesn't seem that tall, but you get to the top of it and it's you're like, wow, I'm, I'm up here. I'm up in the sky. Okay. Uh, you've been to Seattle a lot. I yeah. Think, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool thing about the Space Needle is that it was built in just 400 days. So a little wow. over a year. And at the time it was built for the 1962 World's Fair, it was the tallest structure west of the Mississippi. Kind of nuts, right? Yeah. All right. One last fact for you about the great state of Washington, and that is, except for Alaska, Washington has the most glaciers in the country. It's home to over a third of all glaciers in the contiguous United States. I could see that. Washington seems to be kind of cold, so... It is I mean, the weather's close to Canada. <laughs> exactly. The weather's so nice there. Plus it has lots of mountain ranges where most of the glaciers kind of hang out. Yeah. So yeah, that's my fun fact for the facts for the state of Washington. That sounds like fun. I like all those things. I like Washington. I've never been there, but I like it in theory. I think you'd really enjoy it. I probably would. Well, I guess without further ado, I will get to my story. And we might be talking about a little bit of the same thing that you did in your intro for a tiny bit. Okay. So my story for this week takes place in Seattle, Washington. Seattle is the largest city in Washington and the largest city in all the Pacific Northwest. It is also the county seat of King County. Seattle is best known for a few things, such as being the birthplace of grunge, Starbucks coffee, and their iconic Space Needle. It is also the birthplace of Jimi Hendrix. The Space Needle is actually pretty cool because it was made for the World's Fair in 1962, like we discussed, when the theme was the Age of Space, so that explains the name. It provides a beautiful 360 view of the Seattle skyline, the Puget Sound, the mountains. All in all, it's a great view, as Nicole can apparently attest to. Uh, it stands at 605 feet tall, which is obviously very high up, but when you look at the Empire State Building in comparison, it's like half its size, but it doesn't have to worry about feeling dwarfed since New York is luckily on the other side of the country. And although it has a great view, you can't see that far. <laughs> There's also a restaurant inside called the Loop Lounge. Have you been there, Nicole? I haven't been to the Loop Lounge. The last time I went up into the Space Needle, it was the former revolving restaurant that the the loop lounge has replaced gotcha okay yeah i do remember they had that there's a lot to do in a city this size from shopping to restaurants to music there's a nice farmer's market called pike's place market it looks really cool and is actually the 33rd most visited tourist attraction in the world so it must be damn good farmer's market it is it is it's where they have the iconic fish throwing Yes, Seattle. which you might remember from the opening of The Real World Seattle, if mm -hmm. you watched that. 
so if you mosey on down to Pier 57 of Elliott Bay, you can see yet another main Seattle attraction, the Seattle Great Wheel, which is a Ferris wheel that is nearly 174 feet high, making it the ninth largest Ferris wheel in the U.S. It's goddamn terrifying. Is it? Yeah, I, I had a little bit of a panic attack and couldn't go on it because it was so large. Oh, man. Okay. I mean, like, I like Ferris wheels, but I'm also terrified of heights. Yeah, so. I think I was just having an, I was having a rough day and I'm like, I don't know if I can, I don't think I have it in me. I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I'll take a Xanax before I do it. (laughs) All these things really make Seattle seem like an awesome place to visit, and I know I will eventually make my way over there, but I'm here to talk about the seedier side of the city. This is the story of the murder of Raquel Rivera and Jay Johnson. Raquel Rivera was born September 23rd, 1974, and Jay Johnson was born August 29th, 1974. I looked all over the internet to try to find information on their lives, but found nothing because every article seems to deal with their murder, specifically one part of the murder that led me to choose this case for my Washington story. I do know Raquel and Jay were living together in Seattle. They had plans to get married. uh, And from all accounts, they had a pretty good relationship. And Raquel's mom loved Jay and said that he was very good for her. Like I said, not a lot of before-the-murder information online, so I'm going to dive right in. It all started on December 9th, 1996, so both victims would have been just 22 years old. On this day, Raquel was supposed to start a new job downtown as a secretary, and she was very excited about it. Sadly, she would never get to do that job or do anything else that she wanted to in life, since this would be the day that she and her boyfriend would die. In the early morning hours, neighbors heard gunshots coming from the house and called 911. They said there were five or six shots, a break in gunfire, and then six more shots after that. Once police got there, it was obvious someone had broken in. And I don't mean like a sneaky robbery type break in either. The door was off its hinges and the windows had been shot up too. Oh, damn. The house had been completely ransacked, and it was obvious whoever did this was looking for something. Inside were the bodies of Raquel and Jay, whom had both been shot to death. Their dog, Chief, was there as well. He had been shot in the nose, but was somehow still alive and obviously very scared. He was growling at police when they came in. They were able to call animal control to come for him and get him some help, but he died in surgery which is really upsetting. And I was so mad uh, when I watched a Forensic Files episode about this because when I had seen a preview for the episode, they were talking about how the dog helped solve the case. So I assumed this one, you know, would be like somewhat heartwarming. Yeah. But no such luck there. When doing an autopsy on Chief, they found that he had been shot once in the shoulder and again through the snout. When Jay Johnson had been shot, They said that he was shot several times in the legs before being fatally shot and killed. This is something I actually didn't think about before the detective mentioned it, but it makes sense. He said it's a clear sign someone was trying to extract information from him. So I could definitely see that being a thing. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Police spoke to people who knew the victim, and everyone said the same thing you always hear. They were so nice and had no known enemies. The only evidence left behind were 9mm shells and a smeared footprint. 
Luckily for police, however, there was a witness to this crime who was able to give them a lot of great information. He was 15 years old, and his name, you know, as far as I could find, was not released ever. But he lived in an apartment across the street and was watching through his window. He told police that there were three men, all Samoan, and two had gone into the house while the third waited in the car, a red Chevy Camaro. Police believe these men to be part of a Samoan gang in Seattle called Mad Pack. When I heard this, I was like, okay, usually when asked to describe a suspect, it's like, oh, they were white, they were black, they're Hispanic, so on. But I thought Samoan was just really specific, you know? I had that exact same thought, too, Eden. Like, yeah. from a distance, you recognize someone's ethnicity? Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I can pinpoint you down to, like, which geographical area you're from, not even just, like, race. But, yeah, sure. It's like um, being like, the suspect looked like an Irish dude. <laughs> but, like, I mean, what? there is a reason behind this that I found out, which I never knew. Turns out there's actually a large Samoan community in Seattle. Hmm. Okay. That makes more sense on why someone will be able to identify somebody as Samoan then. Yeah. So earlier in the day, a similar crime had been committed in Chinatown. But the victim whom was shot survived and had also said the perpetrator had been a large Samoan man driving a red Camaro. Uh-oh. Now, Raquel and Jay's murder took place around dawn. so. Honestly, I'm just wondering when this gang gets up in the morning. They never went to bed. I, maybe. I mean, if this is a normal gang thing, I, I never want to be in one. Not that I really wanted to to begin with, but early morning craziness is just not for me. I can't be running around all of Seattle busting caps and, <laughs> you know, that early in the morning. No, thank you. You're like, I'm out. Yep. Anyway, getting back to the story... They also found 9mm casings at that crime scene and compared them to the ones found at Raquel and Jay's house, and they were a match. Police knew to be on the lookout for a large Samoan male driving a red Camaro, and they didn't even really have to work at it that much because, just like they're said to do, he returned to the scene of the crime and was spotted driving very slowly by the crime scene. Huh. Yeah, okay. not too smart. But, I mean, this is a thing that criminals tend to do all the time, so. Um, so, obviously, he was spotted because of his car. Um, and the man's name was Charles Nico. And he was actually a known member of Mad Pack. So, everyone, that, everything that everyone has said, like, checks out so far. When questioned by police, he said, of course, that he was innocent. But the neighbor was able to identify him as the getaway driver. After they told him he could get the death sentence, he quickly told police that the gang had heard Raquel and Jay had cocaine at their house, and that's why they were killed. That seems a little lame. Yeah. Okay. He told them once they had broken in, Jay and Raquel said they did not, in fact, have any cocaine. And then the two other men whom Charles Nico told police were Kenneth Lealuala Ali, or because it's a lot easier, his gang name was Sable Claus, like Santa Claus, but also a hot female wrestler from the 90s. <laughs> and George Tuilafano. And this guy's gang name was Scoopy. Maybe he likes ice cream. Who knows? I don't know. When questioned, 
Both men said they were not there, didn't know what the police were talking about, and had alibis. They searched their apartments, and they did not find the murder weapon. They did take one of Sableclaw's shirts that had blood on it and tested it against both victims' samples, but came up with nothing. The blood was not even human. Mm-mm. At this point, I jumped up and shouted, It's the dog's blood! Run the dog's DNA! But no one listened because I was in fact alone in my house and not around these people. Also, it's <laughs> 26 years too late. Luckily, the police weren't as dumb as I had thought, and they did have a sample of the dog's blood, which was originally meant to differentiate between the two human victims' blood and the dog's blood at the crime scene. To be able to test this blood, however, they needed to find a different lab that specialized in testing non-human blood, which I didn't realize they would need like, to specialize in, but I don't know about blood testing, and also I guess it makes sense. What they think happened, since the shirt only had non-human blood on it, is that both Jay and Raquel were shot at a distance, and both were wearing clothes. The dog was rushing at the attackers trying to defend his family, so he was shot at close range and was not wearing clothes and had a short coat, therefore there was less of a barrier. Also, if anyone was wondering, the lab that specialized in non-human blood tests was one that does blood testing to see if a show dog's puppies are 100% who they're supposed to be, since people sell what I guess you can call knockoff show dog puppies to get more money from people. So people actually pay to have the puppies blood tested to make sure that they are 100% show dog material. And a lot of that puts a bad taste in my mouth, but we have a murder to deal with, so I will not go off on a tangent about how we should just love our puppies and not care where they came from. (laughs) After running a few tests, they discovered it was in fact a match. They also found Chief's hairs on the shirt as well. This was kind of new territory for a courtroom, however, since canine DNA usually isn't admitted into evidence in murder trials. This would be the first one. Uh, The trial lasted eight weeks, and apparently Sable Claus is not as jolly as Santa Claus because he was having constant outbursts during trial and was so disruptive that he was tied up in a wheelchair for trial. Oh, my God. Yeah, they strapped him down to a chair with wheels. Like, it's not even like a a medical wheelchair. This was like literally a chair with wheels that they just strapped him to. Kind (laughs) of, yeah. It was very similar to an office chair. I'd say it was more akin to an office chair than an actual wheelchair. Yeah, so they just tied him up and put him in the chair for trial. And he was also, like, constantly taunting the judge and the victim's family. So he's a real fucking asshole. Wow. Yeah. The judge, luckily, said since the methods used to test the animal DNA were the same as with human DNA, he would allow the blood test evidence into evidence. Which the defense attorney was not at all expecting. They had just assumed it would get immediately thrown out as Mm -hmm. magic hocus pocus. Because, you know, whatever they don't already have going for them is always magic hocus pocus. <laughs> like, it's, it's still science, dude. Just calm down. When on the stand, Luala Ali'i said he said the reason for the blood on his sleeve was the night before he had been out to a club and got into a fight with a guy. And it was the guy's blood. Was that man named Fido? I know. Was that dog or a man? 
Yeah. I mean, I don't think you have a leg to stand on there. Oh, never mind. You're permanently sitting in that wheelchair anyway. (laughs) (laughs) They did hand down a conviction for both men on trial. And apparently Sable Claus is like Santa because he laughed at this. He was very jolly when, you know, getting that guilty verdict. Uh, Lualali'i was convicted of two counts of aggravated first-degree murder and one count of animal cruelty and was sentenced to two terms of life in prison without parole, while Tuilafano was sentenced to 26 and a half years for two counts of first-degree murder. I did not find the appeal date, but there was an appeal, which I read about in a 2003 article, so I think it may have been sometime around 2003. And while they did rule canine DNA should not be admitted into evidence the same way as human DNA is, they decided not only to uphold the sentencing, but also extend the lighter sentence received by Tuilafano. Huh. I could not find what he was resentenced to, but I'm hoping that it was life. I don't even really understand the crime here, if I'm being honest. Like, you heard some people had cocaine and you wanted to rob them for it. Like, they didn't have it, so you killed them? You're in a gang. You have money and shady contacts. Cocaine is not that rare in your world. It's not like they had a blood diamond or something. Like, what do you think, Nicole? Yeah, I agree with you. It is kind of weird, like, the motive that they stated or that was attributed to it. I kind of almost wonder if there was something else going on. But then again. I would feel that there almost had to be. Yeah. But I mean, like, what connection would two very normal people have with this gang? So, I mean, unless they have some super dark secret, which, I mean, they both seem like nice, normal people. So, I mean, but as we've learned from this podcast, it doesn't really matter if you seem like nice, normal people. You can always have a a dark secret. Exactly. Anything's possible. Yeah, that's kind of, yeah. And it's interesting, too, that they, like, drove by afterwards. It's almost like they were looking for something in the house. Maybe, maybe cocaine, but, like, to go kind of back and, like, see if they could get back into the house. Maybe, I don't know, very odd, very odd. Yeah, Very I mean, unnecessary though. Yeah, and it was so so sad when I was like, I I <laughs> hardly ever cry when doing my notes. I cried because of this damn dog. Well, and as boy. I was watching the end of the Forensic Files episode, and they showed more pictures of Cheap, I was like, Oh, who's a good boy? <laughs> yeah, I I talk to the TV if there's a dog on there, telling them they're a good boy, even though they can't fucking hear me. I'm crazy, but oh well, <laughs> I do it. You have puppy fever, friend. I was so sad because, like, he, you know, was shot once in the shoulder when they first came in. Like, apparently, like, he rushed the door when they had broken down the door. And he was shot in the shoulder. Then they went into the bedroom to kill, you know, the two victims. And the dog was injured, but he still wanted to protect his family and ran in again. And that's when he got shot in the face. Mm. So it was so sad. Anyway, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, a Forensic Files episode called Chief Evidence because they can't never not be punny, (laughs) Uh, findgrave.com, archive.seattletimes.com, caselaw.findlaw.com, lmtribune.com, and apnews.com. Also, when I read caselaw.findlaw.com, I almost read it as coleslaw. So... (laughs) Delicious law firm. 
Exactly. My favorites. Um, well, thanks for that story, Eden. It was definitely interesting. And I think one of those odd ways that a crime got solved. Through the yeah, power definitely. I mean, I was happy that there was some weirdness at trial because I'm like, oh, God, how am I going to make this funny? This is so depressing. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break and then we can come back with a news story and I can tell you my supernatural-ish story. Yay for supernatural-ish stories. (laughs) And we are back. And I decided to make you guys feel a little better after my story with some nice animal news. Yay! So this one is funny and cool. Video shows missing cat activate owner's doorbell camera and surprise return home. That's amazing! Yeah! The cat went missing roughly two weeks after her family moved to a new home in Long Island. And the article goes on to say, A missing cat proves she wasn't missing after all thanks to a cordial return to her New York home. Stephanie Whitley, a Long Island woman who owns eight-year-old cat Lily, said her beloved feline went missing roughly two weeks after a recent move to Mastic Beach, WPIX-TV reported. Whitley said she was worried that Lily, who enjoys being outdoors and exploring, would react differently to her new home. Her suspicions were on the nose, but despite being gone for four days, Lily later proved to her family she wasn't going to leave them in their new residence. Whitley said she and her family were startled when their ring doorbell was activated one night. A ring doorbell notification appeared on their TV, and it revealed Lily had returned to their doorstep. <laughs> we all gasped. We, we were laughing. We were emotional. We were crying. It was a great moment, Whitley said. Whitley explained to people that Lily appeared to be mimicking her kids and meowing mom to the camera upon her return. <laughs> The feline has continued to use the method to signal her return home since then, her owner told the news site. Oh, my God. It's yeah. like her, her, like, instead of a cat door, she has the ring doorbell. That's amazing. That's so cool. <laughs> Whitley told WPIX-TV that she isn't sure how Lily found the, me- the family's home, but she believes she understands how ring works. Every time the notification goes off, she'll look toward the door. She knows what she's doing, Whitley said. Yeah, cats can be trained. That is so cool. I mean, I'm never letting Salem out of the house, but and I don't have well. a ring doorbell. Um, but that would be so cool to have a cat that does that. I know. And that's like the thing, right? Is that like, I don't know where their house is and maybe where they live. It's fine to let their feline outside, but I, I live in a city and I cannot let my feline outside as much as he thinks he can go outside. Yeah. And where I live, there's actually an ordinance that say that cats aren't allowed outside without a leash. Ugh. So they will be taken to the pound. Yikes. I told you about how my cat escaped and was like out in our backyard for like eight hours after a party. And like, there's dogs surrounding our entire like backyard like like next to us behind us whatever and he hates dogs he's terrified of them so he basically was like stuck behind the garage like because (laughs) there were dogs everywhere he didn't know where to go and i'm like oh my gosh dude you think you would learn this lesson but he's still trying to sneak out every once in a while right yeah salem very rarely tries to get out the door and normally i'll just quickly go no no 
and he'll go back inside. He's a good boy. Well, thanks for lightening the heart with that warming, delightful animal story, Eden. You are very welcome. Now you may bring the room down once more with your supernatural-ish story. All right, here we go. <laughs> Today we are going to northwestern Washington, heading to an arch- archipelago called the San Juan Islands. Located between the Washington coastline and Vancouver Island, British Columbia, the archipelago consists of 172 named islands and reefs that comprise the San Juan County. Uh, ferries from the mainland serve the three largest island, Orcas, Lopez, and our destination, the eponymous San Juan Island. So we're visiting San Juan Island in the San Juan Islands, if you I've will. never even heard of it, so new territory for me. Uh, San Juan Island covers about 55 square miles, and it's home to roughly 7,000 full-time residents. This makes San Juan the second largest and most populate of the islands in the archipelago, and it also is the county seat. It has an extremely mild climate, averaging around 70 degrees in the summertime and 40 degrees in the winter months. And the prime time to visit San Juan is between June and September. Okay, makes sense. Now, you may be asking yourself, how did an archipelago on the U.S. Canadian border end up with all these Spanish names? Shouldn't it be named after some French or English dude, right? Yeah, definitely. just like you, I wanted to know more, so I dug it, dug in a little bit. The reason the islands have so many Spanish names is because the first European to chart the island was a Spanish explorer named Francisco de Eliza in 1791. Okay. He was sailing under the authority of the Viceroy of Mexico, and he basically just started naming stuff he could see, whether it was islands or straits or whatever, really. And he decided to name them all either after his boss or the guys on the boats with him. Okay, so so he wasn't very creative. No, no. He definitely was like, oh, look, that island? It's now Orcas Island. You're welcome, Viceroy. Here, this one's going to be called Bob after you, guy on the boat. Basically, yeah. He did that twice. And he's like, this is, you're you're straight, Harrow. Thanks for being such a good first mate. (laughs) (laughs) And he also named the largest strait in the area the Gran Canal de Nuestra Señora de la Rosario la Marina, which is, I guess, Spanish for the Grand Canal of Our Lady of the Sailor's Rosary, which, okay, I guess you're thankful. I'm sure she did a lot of heavy lifting. You sounded so Italian on that last word, by I the know. way. It looks so much like marinara sauce. I can't. <laughs> and I don't speak Spanish, so thank you for indulging me. Um, Now, the interesting thing is that the general rule about exploration is that if you want your name to stick around, you probably should stick around yourself. And D'Eliza did not do this. And the very next year, Captain George Vancouver showed up in the area during his famous expedition to the northwestern part of the American continent and promptly started renaming things and negotiating territorial rights with the Spanish. So the Grand Canal became the Strait of Georgia in honor of King George. The name for the San Juan Islands, though, did stick because people had already started referring to them as the San Juan Islands. And over the next few decades, uh, San Juan Island in particular was primarily used as a seasonal base for salmon fishing. This aligned a lot with how the indigenous 
Nusik, Lumi, Samish, and Sanic peoples had used the island for centuries. But here's the first point of creepiness that I came across in my research. Apparently, in a lot of my resources, they referenced that the First Nations people of the area were extremely cautious about setting up permanent settlements on San Juan Island. They would often travel there and use the island as a resource for hunting, fishing, and foraging, but would avoid camping there. When the first Europeans began to visit the island, the native guides were horrified when the Europeans set up camps. The guides offered to return the next day rather than spend the night with the Europeans on San Juan Island. Hmm. Interesting. But as more European settlers made permanent camps, the indigenous people also joined them. And the first permanent European settlement on the island was established by the Hudson Bay Company in 1853. I know those guys. Yeah, they, they, they're still in business today. <laughs> the presence of American fishermen led to both British and Americans asserting control over the island. Uh, it became disputed territory. When a small force of American soldiers went to the island over a concern about this territorial issue, and Native Americans started raiding the American settlements, Tensions rose. The territorial dispute over this island and the rest of the San Juan Island archipelago reached its breaking point when an American settler shot a Hudson Bay Company-owned pig that was rooting around in his vegetable garden in 1859. Poor piggy. Well, it wasn't the first time that pig got loose. (laughs) This led to a confrontation between the U.S. and the United Kingdom called the Pig War. Have you ever heard of the Pig War? No, I have not. (laughs) Apparently, it was a thing in like the 1860s. Now, during the Pig War, the British forces descended on the island to arrest the American farmer, and the American military forces arrived to prevent the farmer's arrest. It basically became a stalemate on the southern tip of the island, and fearing that the so-called pig incident would lead to an international crisis, President James Buchanan got involved and set up negotiations. Luckily, the negotiations worked out okay, and the only casualty of this war, quote-unquote, was the pig itself. Uh, The negotiated agreement led to a joint military occupation of San Juan Island, with a pretty amicable social life happening between the occupying British and American forces for about the next 12 years. During this time, the 1862 Pacific Northwest smallpox epidemic swept through the region, killing a large number of the indigenous people in the area. Smallpox Bay on the west side of San Juan Island is actually named for the victims of this epidemic. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to go to a place called Smallpox Bay, honestly. No, not the best. Not the best. I mean, I get the intention. I get the best best intentions. Didn't think it through. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the tensions between Britain and America in the region were eventually fully resolved by international arbitration led by Kaiser Wilhelm I, the German emperor, who decided that the islands were pretty much American. There's a lot more to the San Juan Island pig war that I could cover as part of my intro. So if you're interested in learning more about this wacky 19th century international will-they-won't-they-go-to-war incident, I recommend checking out the excellent episode about the war on Stuff You Missed in History class. So it was a will-they-won't-they situation. Yep, yep, yep. Today, 
San Juan Island is dotted with numerous farms, and tourism drives a majority of its economy. There's two substantial marinas on the island that can host larger yachts and tall ships. Roche Harbor on the northwestern tip of the island, and Friday Harbor, which is on the eastern coast. The island's location makes it ideal for sailing and whaling excursions, kayak tours, on and on-land activities include things like hiking or visiting San Juan Island National Historic Park on the southern tip. In the park, you can discover the sites of the U.S. and American camps for the Pig War. Each camp is designated as a historic national landmark and includes the surviving buildings such as the barracks and commissary. In the two-acre park, you can also visit for free and explore the three hiking trails and launch kayaks from either historic camp. Other fun things to do on San Juan Island include visiting Prelindaba Lavender Farms. Easy for you to say. <laughs> Who doesn't love a little lavender, Edith? Um, you can also visit some of the small family-run aquaculture farms like Westcott Bay Fish Company, where you can buy oysters, mussels, and clams and see how shellfish farming operates in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, San Juan Island, I looked for famous residents, and I only found one, but I feel it's f- I should mention it since I know that you love yourself some WWE Eden. Well, I used to. Used to, but it was in the time period we used to love it, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Perfect. So one of the most famous residents, if not the most famous resident on San Juan Island, is Lisa Ivory Moretti, who between, I think, like 1999 and like 2005 was in the WWE as Ivory. Okay, I thought it was going to be Ivory. Yeah. I remember her. She, I didn't realize how many times she won the WWE Championship, and they actually inducted her into the, the Wrestling Hall of Fame. That doesn't surprise me. Well, the WWE Hall of Fame. Yeah, I was like, I, I kind of remember her, and I remember the whole pimp storyline, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. I know, I was like, uh-oh, uh, when I saw that name, and I was like, oh, re- oh yeah. But yeah, she <laughs> she lives on San Juan Island, so I just had to mention it, because I figured you would find that a fun little tidbit. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you do visit San Juan Island, rest assured that there are great offerings in terms of fine dining, especially seafood restaurants. I mean, come on. And there's also a couple of vineyards, a brewery, and a distillery. In terms of accommodations, there are a few grand hotels that were built on the island during the late 19th and early 20th century. They're still in operation today. One of those, Hotel de Haro, is our stop for today. Okay, haunted hotels are always fun. Mm-hmm. So located in Roche Harbor on the northern tip of the island, the 19-room Hotel de Haro was built in 1888 by John Stafford McMillan. And I will say, Eden, I don't think you would like to stay at this particular hotel because it is very Victorian. There's only six rooms that have their own bathrooms. All the rest share communal bathrooms. Okay, no, I mean, as long as I get one of the good rooms, I'm fine. But if I have to share that bathroom, not doing it. Mm-mm. He's going to be a grumpy Eden. Mm-hmm. So, now the man who built this hotel is super interesting. Um, John McMillan was a lawyer and a successful businessman who was also a really important figure in the island's history. He was born in Sugar Grove, Indiana, 
and he attended DePaul University, where he became a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity. After graduating with a master's degree, he remained active in fraternity affairs throughout his adult life and installed Sigma Chi chapters at numerous universities in the Pacific Northwest, and even served as the first grand consul, which is the international president for the organization. McMillan relocated to the Washington Territory with his family in 1884, and he invested in a company in Tacoma called the Tacoma Lime Company. In 1886, McMillan and the other company investors purchased Roche Harbor for its rich limestone deposits. He was soon elected the president and general manager and of the reincorporated Tacoma and Roche Harbor Lime Company. The Lime Works was very, very successful, generated a lot of income from McMillan and his partners, and he became a leading figure on San Juan Island and in Western Washington, even going so far as to dabble in po- politics and run for office. Hmm. Okay. So when McMillan opened Hotel de Haro, it became very, very much the place to see and be seen on San Juan Island. It was a super popular destination for people visiting the Northwest, and wealthy figures such as Theodore Roosevelt would book a room at Deharo. Modern visitors to the hotel have reported some unsettling incidents, however. The most commonly reported incident involves an unknown female ghost who's become a fixture of the hotel. She's known to play pranks on guests, such as moving belongings or unmaking beds. One witness reported that during their stay at Hotel Taharo, they woke up with their entire room in disarray. Someone or something had pulled everything out of their suitcases and strewn it around the hotel room, all without waking them up. Well, they shouldn't have pissed off the front desk staff, honestly. <laughs> Other guests have reported hearing ringing in their ears and seeing shadowy figures passing on the second and third floor windows. Now, interestingly... Hotel Deharo isn't the only structure that McMillan built on San Juan Island that has a supernatural reputation. Near the hotel, he built a mausoleum for his family. The McMillan family mausoleum is locally known as Afterglow Vista. That's kind of a pretty name. It is a pretty name. It's unlike any mausoleum I've ever, ever encountered. John McMillan was not only an active member of the Sigma Chi fraternity, so he was into secret society stuff, but he was also an ardent Freemason and a practicing Methodist. So when it came to designing his family's final resting place, it's chock full of all this mystical symbolism. Oh, cool. After Glow Vista took six years to build and cost about $30,000 at the time, which would be closer to $640,000 today. It was completed in 1936, which is the same year that John McMillan died. So it was there. It was ready. To journey to the mausoleum, you start by passing under a series of gates that wind through an old cemetery. The gates have various messages on them, like, quote, fare thee well, and if forever, still forever, fare thee well. Or, your coming gave us pleasure, your going gives us ruin. Cheery. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So you follow this half-mile trail through the graveyard and the woods until you reach a stone archway with the words Afterglow Vista chiseled on them. 
after passing under the archway to reach the burial site, which is an open-air rotunda with a limestone table at its center. Around the table are six thick stone chairs, a chair for each member of the McMillan family. The back of the chairs have their names inscribed on them. The base of the chairs are the actual crypts that hold the ashes of the family. Thus, the chairs act as headstones. Weird. I mean, I like this idea, but also it is very creepy. It is very creepy. The table is meant to symbolize the unity of the McMillan family, not just in life, but as it continues into death. And you'll notice around the table, there's a visible gap. Uh, Several sources mention that the gap was left to symbolize one of the McMillan's sons who turned his back on Methodism. I could not confirm this. And it looks like all of the McMillan children are accounted for at Afterglow Vista, however. Hmm. So it could have some other sort of symbolism. Now, as I mentioned before, the site has tons and tons of symbolism. A lot of them are Masonic in origin. And so much so that people have often called Afterglow Vista a Masonic landmark. Now, the open-air rotunda is supported by six Roman-style columns created to be the same size as those in King Solomon's temple. And the sixth column is intentionally broken as part of the design to symbolize the messianic idea that the, that a man's life always ends abruptly. He dies before he can ever complete his work fully. Okay. See, it's funny because I have family members that are Freemasons or that were Freemasons. They're all dead now. <laughs> but um, like, I know nothing about freemasonry because it's all so secretive and Mm -hmm. they would tell you nothing when you asked yeah yeah so this is the interesting thing is like certain things we know what they symbolize but there's other things like the gap in the table that we have no idea maybe if you're a freemason you might have an inkling of what it is but they're not talking the interesting thing is that the open air rotunda was not part of the original design originally it was going to have this brass dome that covered the table and rested on the top of the columns but After John McMillan passed, his son opted not to follow through on it, finding that the expense would just outweigh the usefulness of having a brass dome over the family mausoleum. When you approach the rotunda, there's two different sets of steps. Now, these sets of steps, again, are steeped with messianic symbolism. The stairs on the east side of the mausoleum stand for the spiritual life of man. The winding path symbolizes the future that cannot be seen. The stairs were built in sets of three, five, and seven, with little landings kind of in between them. These represent the three stages of life, youth, adulthood, and old age. The five orders of architecture, Tuscan, Doric, Iconic, Corinthian, Composite, the five senses, and the seven liberal arts and sciences. So grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Hmm. Okay, I had this very well thought out. Everything has some sort of meaning. Yes, yes. Um, I recommend you Google Afterglow Vista, Eden. When I look at pictures of the McMillan family mausoleum, it gives me this feeling that I have stumbled upon this ancient sacred place, like something out of like a sword and sorcery fantasy epic. Like I'm just waiting for the Elven Council to begin. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, it definitely looks very like Elvish. Like I can see that. Oh, yeah. And like with the the table and chairs. 
It yep. just makes me think of like Lord of the Rings when they're all like, you know, I will help you take the ring to Mordor. Like, you know. Yes. Yes. That's totally what I pictured. I'm like, I have I haven't seen this episode of Rings of Power yet. <laughs> so. <laughs> exactly. It's perfect. Yeah. I really like it. It's really cool. Yeah. This place is so, so special. Uh, it's not a surprise that visitors who are unrelated to the McMillans will just go to experience it. And of course, that has led to some, again, unusual paranormal experiences reported by visitors. The top one that people seem to report most frequently is seeing blue orbs. Now, there have been reports of the blue orbs floating above each chair at night. There's been reports of blue orbs floating in the center of the table. Reports vary, but they always seem to go back to these blue orbs appearing at night. There's also been reports of unexplained sounds and voices at Afterglow Vista as well. Cold spots also seem to linger near the table and chairs. It's reported that on full moon nights, the ghosts of the family can sometimes be seen sitting, talking, and laughing around the table. Oh, creepy. Super creepy. And then even more creepy is that visitors who sit in the chairs, a.k.a which is kind of rude. They're somebody's headstone. Yeah. Those visitors report feeling nervous, like they're violating a sacred place because they are. And if you sit on the table, it's said that it feels like an invisible, invisible hand is shoving you, trying to make you move off the table. Okay. You know what? I wouldn't have sat on the table, but now that you've said that, I might have to. <laughs> and then the other creepy thing that's been reported is that – when it is rainy and it rains a lot on San Juan Islands, it's almost as if no water falls in the center of the rotunda where their roof would have been. Like people have noticed that the rotunda and the table and chairs seem remarkably dry, even though it's raining. Wow. Okay. And then of course, according to another legend, it's said that when the sun sets on the mausoleum, if you can't quite tell if it's, McMillan's appearing, but shadows appear to walk around the table and sometimes sit in the chairs. Oh, God. Yeah, that could be kind of related to the appearance of, of the ghosts that people say they see of the family there. This place is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my it was one of those things I learned about years ago and I've always wanted to go there. And I'm like, it seems so amazingly yeah. just special. If I ever get a chance to go to Washington, I'm definitely going here. Yeah. And of course, there's also some stories related to the seventh person interred at Afterglow Vista. The McMullen family governess and secretary, Ida Beanie. So this is interesting. In the 1950s, new owners bought Hotel de Haro, which is adjacent to Afterglow Vista. And when they were cleaning out the hotel, they found an urn containing Ida's ashes. They didn't really know what to do with them, so they took the ashes to Afterglow Vista to inter them with the McMullen family. The only drawback is there's no placard or headstone for Ida, so they just interred her with John McMillan. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, since the 1950s, there's been an increase in reports of unexplained events at Afterglow Vista. Some people speculate that it could possibly be the fact that Ida has been interred there without being recognized. Witnesses have reported seeing Ida's ghost wandering from Afterglow Vista back to Hotel de Haro, where she reportedly spent many happy years with 
the McMillan family and their children. At Hotel Daharo, she has been seen opening and shutting doors in the hotel restaurant and has also been blamed for turning off and on lights and appliances in the hotel kitchen. Overall, Hotel Daharo and Acrilua Vista are testaments to the power and money that the McMillan family once had, especially on San Juan Island, and they're definitely a must-see. So Eden, I know you said if you ever get the chance to go to Washington State, you would absolutely visit Acrilua Vista. Yeah. Uh, would you go there at night? Sure. You're like, yes, I would. <laughs> yeah. I want to see some shit. <laughs> and then run away scared. Because I'm uh, not as tough as I pretend to be sometimes. <laughs> so that's that's my uh, spooky-ish. Not, not, not a ton of ghosts, but definitely some activity. Yeah. I mean, I like that. Like, I, I would love to go there. Like, it looks breathtakingly beautiful first of all uh and you definitely feel like yeah fantasy novel vibes absolutely like an elven structure of like you know something like that there's even Mm -hmm. like one of the columns is like broken yeah so it gives that like old ruins feeling like you're in like ancient greece too you know yeah and it's like in the middle of the woods which i just think is so cool oh beautiful yes absolutely my sources for this story were wikipedia visit sanjuan.com Atlas Obscura, Only in Your State, WA Haunted House, NPS.gov, Three Moon Collective, and Pacific Northwest Pronunciation Guide. (laughs) Well, thank you for that, Nicole. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess that is our show for this week. Um, If you guys liked what you heard, Feel free to rate and review us on whatever podcast app that you use to listen to us. You can get in contact with us a number of ways. You can send us an email at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com or stop by our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can also find us on social media. Uh, We are Roadside Horror Show on Facebook and Instagram and Roadside Horror on Twitter. We'd like to thank Yox Rocks Design and E. Massey for our logo and intro and outro music. So until next time, guys, creep, creep on, on, creeping, creeping on. on.